0: Good morning. Thanks for being here this morning. My name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors at Trinity. And this morning it is my privilege to get to lead us in our study of God's Word, which currently has us in the Gospel of Matthew, making our way through Matthew's account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And this morning we will be in Matthew chapter 11, verses 1 through 19. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, I invite you to open it up and follow along with me as we look at 11, 1 through 19. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one uh, on the chair rack on the seats in front of you. Uh, and if you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, a little piece of paper with a copy of the text, some space to take notes, and you would like one, just slip up your hand and Alex will make sure that you get one from the back. Uh, Here at Trinity, we love the Bible. We believe it is how God reveals himself to us, how we know who he is, who we are, and how we should relate to him. And so, generally, the way that we teach is we just walk through sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph. We want to understand God's word in its context, not try to make it fit our agenda, not try to make it fit what we want to say on a given Sunday, but we want to say what God says. And so, right now, we're working through Matthew. And as we arrive in chapter 11 this morning, we've spent the past several weeks watching Jesus send his disciples out into the world by themselves for the first time ever. And he's given them encouragement, he's given them warning about the opposition that they're going to face. And he's sent them out into the culture with his message in his authority. And now in chapter 11, as the disciples go out, Jesus continues on his own to go from place to place from town to town, and teach. And this morning, we will see in the way the crowds and even his closest friends and followers react to him, the danger that comes from misplaced expectations. All of us bring expectations to the table when we read God's word, when we come to church. We have things that we expect Jesus to do, things we expect God to do, and that's going to color the way that we hear what Jesus has to say. But expectations can be a dangerous thing because the wrong expectations can ruin a good thing. Now, let me, as an example, let's say that this past week you were invited to a party. And this past week was Halloween. And so you're invited to this party. You think, hey, it's a Halloween party. And you assume that it's a costume party. And so you put on your Halloween costume. You show up to the party and everybody's there, they're having a great time, but they're not in costume and you're dressed like Darth Vader. And now it's mildly uncomfortable. And no matter how many good friends you have there, no matter how good of a time you can have, no matter how many new faces you might get to meet, all you can be conscious of all night long is you are hopelessly out of place because you had the wrong expectations for the night and you did not come prepared for what was going to happen, right? It's a fine party, nothing wrong with people there. Nothing wrong with the event itself, but you are out of place because you arrived with expectations that did not fit the event that you were coming to. So in Jesus's day, most everyone in Israel had expectations about Messiah, about the promised savior, the long expected king that was promised to come and save his people. Everybody had their expectations of what he would do, what he would say who he would lift up, who he would condemn, what he would do for the people, for the nation. And as we're going to see this morning, some of those expectations were wrong. Some of them were quite wrong. Some of them were way off base, and they caused the people who held those expectations to miss Jesus entirely when he does show up. Some of them were a little bit closer to home. Some of them were just slightly off, enough that For Jesus' followers, when those expectations don't get met, it introduces doubts in some of their lower moments. And it's easy with the benefit of hindsight to look back at them and we know the story, we know what Jesus came to accomplish, we know about the cross, we know about the resurrection, we know about the hope and forgiveness of sins that we've just sang about this morning. And so we see the Israelites with these very narrow expectations that miss the boat and we think, silly Israelites, there they go, blowing it again but are we really so different today? I would suggest to you that outside the church in our modern day, some people dismiss Jesus because he doesn't fit into the box of what a God and Savior are supposed to be like. They have a set of expectations. Jesus falls outside of those, and so they say, eh, don't have to worry about that guy. That's not what God is like. But even inside the church. Sometimes we come to God with a set of expectations that we expect him to fulfill, and when things don't go according to our plan, we are tempted to doubt. We're tempted to wonder if God is really in control to begin with, all because we brought a set of expectations to the table that aren't necessarily what he's promising. So what's the cure for this? What's the cure for the kind of expectations that derailed people in Jesus' day, that derail us in our own day? Well, the cure is to understand the real Jesus, to see him as he is, to hear him in his own words, and to let him tell us what he came to accomplish, and to see the glory and the majesty that rests in him alone. And that's what we're going to do as we read this morning. So join me as I read 11, 1 through 19 in Matthew's Gospel, and we'll study it together. 11.1 one says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Let's pray together as we study this text and learn what God has to say to us through it. Our God and Father, whose wisdom is high above our own, as we approach these words this morning, your words, we ask that what we know not you would teach us what we have not, you would give us, and what we are not, you would make us. By the power of your word, by your Spirit's work in our hearts, to the praise of the name of Jesus we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so. What are we talking about here? What is going on as we look at this text? We're going to break it down into three little sub-stories that all come together under this theme of expectations. And the first sub-story is in verses 1 through 6, as we see John the Baptist doubting Jesus' identity. John doubts Jesus' identity. So Jesus has just finished instructing his disciples. 11.1 1 serves as a really great segue to transition to this new text. The disciples are out preaching and teaching. Jesus is out preaching and teaching. So what's Jesus doing once he sends his disciples out? Well, he keeps doing the same thing he's been doing for the past six chapters of the book. He's going out, preaching the gospel, doing miracles, and ministering to the crowds. And word continues to spread about what he's doing, right? We've seen so far there's crowds everywhere he goes. People hear about the healings. They hear about the miracles. They hear this teaching with authority, which is completely unlike anything that happens in their culture at that time, and they want to see this guy. They want to hear him. And as word continues to spread about what's going on, it reaches the ears of John the Baptist, who now finds himself in prison. You may remember back in chapter 4, there was a passing reference as Jesus began his ministry to the fact that John was arrested and thrown in prison by Herod. Uh, Because some of John's preaching hit a little too close for comfort for Herod, and he decided to take care of that problem. So John is in prison. John hears about what's going on with Jesus, and he sends some of his followers to Jesus as messengers with a question for him. And when we read that question, honestly, it's a little bit shocking. It's not in keeping with the character of this guy, John, that we met earlier on in the book. Verse 2, now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In essence, what he's asking is, are you really the Messiah or should we wait for somebody else? Now, why on earth would John be wondering Right? This is not at all like the confident preacher that we met back in chapter 3. He wasn't doubting the identity of Jesus back then. In fact, he was proclaiming it with clarity, with boldness. Matthew 3, 13 and 14, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? He understood the significance of who stood before him. Right? How about in John's gospel, in that same account, as Jesus enters the scene, what does John proclaim to everyone? He says, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No doubt there. So what has changed? How do we go from that to, are, are you the one who is to come or, or should we be looking for somebody else? Why the doubt? Well, let's consider where John is. He's in prison. He is languishing in a prison cell. Now, John was clear on his mission, as we just saw. He understood what he had come to do, the message that he came to proclaim. He was preparing the way for the Christ. He called people to repent, to be baptized, to prepare themselves for the arrival of the promised Messiah. And he knew as we heard Alex refer to from Malachi earlier, he knew that the Messiah's appearance would bring with it a flourishing of justice and judgment. John understood that all was not as it should be in the land of Israel, and God promised to send one who would set things right. John preached that kind of message. He preached about a Messiah who was coming who would do justice and who required repentance of his people. Matthew three, eleven through twelve. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So using agricultural imagery that would have been very familiar to his hearers, John says judgment is coming. The one I prepare the way for, he is going to set things right. So repent, turn from your sins, turn back to God. And John didn't soft pedal that message to appease the feelings of powerful people, which is why he's in prison now, right? Mark six eighteen through 19 says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted him put to death. So, John comes with clarity about his mission, clarity about his message. He preaches About sin. He condemns sin. He preaches and upholds righteousness and justice. He doesn't shrink back when powerful people don't like what he has to say, and he ends up thrown in prison for it. But John's probably thinking in his mind that's okay, because Messiah is coming, and he's going to set everything right. He is the one who is going to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. He will do justice and righteousness. He will settle all accounts and put everything to rights, except he hasn't. Now We don't know exactly where this falls on the timeline, but we know that John was in prison for probably about 12 to 18 months before his eventual execution. So this probably falls maybe around the one-year mark as we've watched Jesus's ministry grow and flourish. And so John is sitting in prison and days turn into weeks and weeks turn into months. And at some point, I imagine he thinks this isn't how the story is supposed to go. This isn't the way Messiah is supposed to come. Where's the justice? Where's the judgment? Where's The condemnation of those in power who have flaunted God's law, who hate God. When is it going to come? And so John wonders, maybe Jesus isn't the one after all. Maybe maybe there's going to be someone else. Maybe this is just like forerunner phase two here. And so he sends his messengers to Jesus with the question, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? Do you ever struggle with doubt? Do you ever struggle with doubt when you're suffering, when you're sad, when you're angry, when things aren't going the way that you expect, when things aren't going the way that you think they should go, and you wonder, is God really at, at the wheel of this ship? Is he really in control? I don't understand how this can be happening if his promises are true. Do you ever doubt in those moments? Do you ever doubt his goodness? Do you ever doubt his power? Are you ever haunted by questions that you're afraid to ask out loud because you wonder what other Christians will think of you? Right, if I was a real Christian, I wouldn't doubt that, so I better keep my mouth shut so everybody thinks that I have the nice smiley face and everything's good and great. You ever like that? You ever have those doubts that creep in? Are you ever afraid that those doubts mean you're not saved? Those doubts mean maybe you're not really a Christian. If I was a real Christian, if I really had faith, I wouldn't have these doubts. And you're tormented inside because of that? Well, let me give you some good news this morning. If the man who Jesus is about to identify as the greatest human being who had ever lived up to that point had doubts, you can too. And it doesn't mean that you're outside of the grace of God. John wrestles with doubts. You don't need to question your salvation because you wrestle with doubts. Doubts are not the mark of someone who is outside of Christ. Christians are not marked by the absence of doubt. But hear this. Christians are marked by what we do with our doubts. You have doubts? Fantastic. You fit right in around here. But what are you going to do with them? What does John do with his doubt? Well, Where does he go with them? He takes them to Jesus, right? He sends messengers to Jesus with his question. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? He doesn't cling to his doubts, right? He doesn't cling to them and find some kind of perverse comfort from them like a kid with a security blanket. I think the way that we treat our doubts sometimes makes me think of Gollum from Lord of the Rings. And he's got his ring and he sits in his cave and this thing which is causing him to decay and be corrupted, he sits clutching at my precious. I think we're we're that way with our doubts. They don't help us. They're not good for us. And yet we find almost a comfort in holding on to them and pouring over them. But John gives us an example to follow. John takes his doubts and turns them into a question. And he takes the question to Jesus. And he waits for an answer. He waits to hear what Jesus will say. And Jesus gives him one. I love this. Jesus gives him an answer, and the way he answers is so helpful for you and I, because maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, okay, I'm tracking with you, Pastor DJ, but I can't just ask Jesus a question like John could, right? He can just ask whatever he wants, and Jesus can actually answer it, and I don't have that. But I'm going to tell you this. The way Jesus answers John's question is the way he's going to answer your question today, because look what he does. Jesus gives John an answer that is specifically designed to drive John's mind to what he already knows from God's word. Jesus doesn't just say, yes, I'm the one. What does he say in verse four? Jesus answered them, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, when John hears this answer, I guarantee you John would not go, so so is that a yes or a no? John would have understood exactly what Jesus is saying. The words that Jesus says here are alluding to texts of scripture about the promise of what Messiah will do. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. I'm going to read a couple texts here. Look at what we just heard Jesus say to John. See if you hear some familiarity with these two scriptures. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 promises, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah 61, 1, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And so when Jesus says, go tell John what's going on around here. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news to preach to them. He's telling John, think about, think about your Bible. You know your Bible, John. What's it say? Here's what the Bible says Messiah is going to do. Here's what's happening right now. So he doesn't just give John the yes answer. He tells John, remember what the Lord has already said. Remember his word. And when we doubt He will answer us in the same way. When we say, God, why would you allow this to happen? He might not split the heavens and speak audibly to you and say, well, it's exactly this reason right here. But he's going to remind you of his word. He's going to remind you of his promises that were true when it was a good day, and they're still true when it's a bad day. See, Jesus is pointing John away from his own expectations for the Messiah and to what God promised the Messiah would do. John's thinking, well, if Jesus is really the one, I wouldn't still be in prison. He would have already judged and ran Herod off, and the new age would be starting. But Jesus says, no, reflect on the promises. And as John is pointed to those promises, you wonder if his mind would also go to the other scriptures around it. So we read Matt, or Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Listen to the words that come from verses 3 and 4. Right before those words that Jesus just alluded to, Isaiah says this, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Jesus reminds John, I am the Messiah. I am doing exactly what God promised I would do, and I will come with justice. It's it's going to happen. My salvation will be there. Take heart. Jesus points John away from his expectations and to God's promises. And when we have our eyes redirected from our preconceived notions of what God should do, (coughs) excuse me, and we place them on the promises of God's word, we will find peace we will find peace from the very fears and doubts that would threaten to overrun us. Because it's not about how I think it should go, it's about how my righteous and good and loving Father says it will go, and I can take comfort in that. And so Jesus sends John's messengers back to him with that message. And we will revisit John here in a few more chapters and see how his story ends. But right now in verse 7... Jesus turns from John's messengers and he begins to address the crowd. He begins to address the people around him. And here we see our second sub-story this morning about how Jesus clarifies John's identity. So John doubts Jesus' identity and Jesus turns around and clarifies John's identity. Because Jesus, as he turns his attention to the crowds, it would seem perhaps that some of the crowds are having the same doubts that John did. And that John's followers did. John and his passionate message that people were flocking out to see, John's now been silenced behind prison walls. And maybe people wonder well, was John really the, the messenger? Was he really a prophet? And so Jesus basically turns to the crowds, the crowds who doubt whether John's mission has been cast into doubt by him getting thrown into prison, and he says, What, what did you expect? How did you think this was going to go, right? Look at verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? And he's going to repeat that question three times. What did you go out to see? John was drawing crowds. Why, why did you go? What was remarkable about him? And then he's going to ask two rhetorical questions that everyone in the crowd would instantly say no. No. So what's the first question? Did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? Right, the image here is of, of a plant, of a reed that blows with the wind. Did you go out to see somebody who molded and changed his message, you know, kind of did the get up in the morning? Oh, what's the culture saying? I think I'm going to go that way. No, that wasn't John. John preached one message, and he didn't change it for anybody. And he's in prison now because of that fact. What's the next question? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Was John a respectable man? Was he one who wore fine clothes, who everybody in the culture would say, yeah, that's a good, upstanding guy? Someone who would be given honor by the prevailing culture of the day? Well, that's a negative. That wasn't John. In fact, Jesus pokes fun at the fact, like, where, where did John minister, by the way? Out in the desert. You're going to go looking for people in fine clothes in the desert? No, they live in king's houses. That's where you find those people. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. So what then did you go out to see? Who who is he? Did you go to see a prophet? Yes. They were drawn to John because he was a prophet, a man who spoke for God. A man who was like the prophets of old, who spoke truth in a way that that wasn't like Jesus. It wasn't like the religious leaders. John spoke with passion, with authority, with conviction. He called the people to repentance. He was beholden to God and to nobody else. And Jesus says he was indeed a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. And Jesus quotes the book of Malachi here in verse 10 saying that John isn't just a prophet, he is the prophet. This is the text that Alex read for us this morning. He is the messenger who will come to prepare the way for the Lord. John is this promised one. Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Jesus says, who did you go out to see? You went out to see a prophet. And not only a prophet, but more than a prophet, the messenger, the promised one who will prepare the way for the Lord. Now, I want you to notice here, as Jesus is clarifying John's identity, he's also clarifying his own identity by implication. And we see the first hint of that right here. Jesus quotes an Old Testament scripture where God himself says, Malachi 3.1, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare the way for me if we look at at, uh, at malachi 3 1 he says who will prepare the way for me so this is god saying my messenger who ends up being john the baptist will prepare the way for me do you notice that jesus changes the pronoun when he quotes the text Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. What Jesus is saying is an Old Testament scripture where God said, my messenger will prepare the way for me. Jesus says, well, that messenger prepared the way for me. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm God. I'm I'm the one who spoke the promise of Malachi 3.1. So Jesus is clarifying John's identity. And in doing that, he's clarifying for us his own identity. Jesus is lumping the way that they react to John with the way they react to to Him. So Jesus declares John in verse 11 to be the greatest human being who has ever lived up to this point. And this is saying something here, right? Truly I say to you, among those born of women, which is just an idiom for among people, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Now, if you know your Old Testament, there have been some great people in the Old Testament. The Israelites would have said Moses, right? Moses is, is the greatest Israelite. And then there's their father, Abraham, who was great. And then there's King David, who was great. And then there's all those prophets that they loved that, of course, were mistreated back when they were alive, Elijah and Elisha. And Jesus says, but there's no one more significant than John. John has the biggest and best task of all of them. But then he, he twists things a little bit, doesn't he? He says, but the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. So John is the most significant human being who has ever lived. And Jesus says, but the most insignificant person in my kingdom is more significant than John. And he says here in the kingdom of heaven, we hear heaven and we think of like pearly gates and and all of that imagery. But when Jesus uses this, this language of kingdom of heaven, he's talking about his kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom that he is bringing into the world by his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, this new reality that we are heirs of in the church as his kingdom and his gospel spreads throughout the world. And so Jesus says, the most insignificant person in my kingdom is more significant than the greatest human being who had ever lived. And so here's another one of those implication questions where we say Jesus is, he's clarifying his own identity. If the most insignificant person in Jesus's kingdom is more significant than the greatest person who ever lived before that, what does that make Jesus? How significant does that make Jesus? Jesus is saying, my arrival changes everything. And you're surprised because they threw John in prison. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. The violent take it by force. John is facing this reality. The crowd doesn't know it at this point, but Jesus is going to face this reality as they turn on him. This is his kingdom. This is the new reality that he is bringing into the world. And and it continues to this day. People suffer because the kingdom of heaven is opposed violently. People are reacting against what God is doing in the world. Jesus is saying all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah that is to come. Now, I like the way he uses this phrase: "If you're willing to accept it, you got to put aside your expectations, because John doesn't look like what you thought. I don't look like what you thought." But he is Elijah. In Malachi chapter 4, God promises to send his prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord. And it's not that John is like Elijah reincarnated, which he denies being elsewhere in the Gospels, but he is one who is sent in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That that is his message, to go out and turn people back to the Lord. And Jesus says, if you're willing to set aside your expectations, I'm going to tell you Elijah has come. And he came to prepare the way for me. Jesus clarifies John's identity, and he clarifies his own. And what he says is everything that has ever happened, the law, the prophets, everything about history has brought them to this moment, has prepared them for this moment. Will they recognize it? And will we recognize it? Will we get Jesus's identity Right? Because the most significant event in the history of the world has arrived, and it's right here before them. But it's here that we see a sharp warning from Jesus about our third sub-story. And that is that false expectations can blind us to the truth. You see, because the people had the wrong expectations, they are missing this entirely the people don't have ears to hear. Jesus says in verse 15, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. They didn't. They didn't recognize it. He says, but let me tell you what you're like. Let me tell you what this generation is like. They are like, verse 16, children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So Jesus says, they are like kids who were out in the marketplace, and the marketplace is where the children would play in those days. So think of this as the the ancient equivalent of the playground. You're like a bunch of kids out on the playground, and you can't decide what game you want to play, and you whine when everybody doesn't fall in line with what you want to do, right? We played the flute, and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. Let's put a modern day spin on it. It's like a bunch of kids sitting outside. We were going to play basketball, but you didn't want to. And then we were going to play tag, and you didn't want to do that. And we said, let's play hopscotch jump, and you didn't jump. You're like a bunch of whiny kids who say, this is what we're doing, and if you don't do that, poo on you. And the people are looking, and and they're thinking, "What's, what's he talking about here? And Jesus gives evidence of this. What is the evidence that Jesus gives for the fact that the people's expectations have blinded them To the truth. Well, he looks at Jesus and John and he says, We lived complete we live completely different lifestyles. Right? If you want to talk about types of messengers God can send, Jesus and John are about as far on the other ends of the spectrum in terms of their personality and the methods of their ministry as you could be. They have the same message, but the way that they live is very, very different. And Jesus said, And you can't stand either one of us. You slander both of us. Look at verse 18. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So John lived an austere life, right? He lived in the desert. He wore rough clothing. He was a little bit unkempt, and he abstained from drink, didn't drink. And abstain from all but the most basic of foods. And when we say basic, like bugs and honey, kind of basic. Not a feast guy. Like the original paleo diet. That's John here. And what do they say about him? He's nuts. That guy's crazy. He has a demon. He's a madman. And so, because they reacted negatively to John, which, I mean, John was a little different, let's be clear. They should love Jesus, right? Right? They should love Jesus cuz Jesus was the opposite of that. He mixed right into society. People were were wanted to be around him and he was at parties and everything. And and Jesus was invited to come to these parties. Jesus feasted, Jesus drank. His first miracle was turning water into wine, so like Jesus socially people wanted to be around him. And so The Pharisees, the religious leaders, the establishment, they should love him, right? Because he's the opposite of what John was. And they say, he's too worldly, right? He hangs out with, with all the people that God hates. And he drinks too much. And he eats too much. He's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He spends all his time with God haters. He is not at all like a good religious leader should be. So Jesus says... Okay, so John didn't eat and drink, and you called him a madman. I eat and drink, and you say, I'm a glutton and a drunkard. What do you people want? Why did they reject both Jesus and John? Because they did not fit their expectations. Neither one of them danced to the tune that they wanted to play. And so because of that, they refused to hear their message. They rejected what they had to say, and they put themselves in a place of pride and position over what God had to say to them. That, that's what they did, right? Jesus says, you're like a bunch of, of whining children. In your pride, you're refusing to hear what somebody else is saying because you didn't get your way. And so you reject John because he's, he's crazy and you reject me because I'm too worldly. And what you miss is what our message is. And you tune us out Because we didn't fit into your box. We didn't fit your expectation. You put yourself on a pedestal, judging the wisdom of God. Jesus says, ultimately, your beef is with God and his wisdom. Because you're saying, John wasn't right. That's not the way he should have done it. Jesus, you're not doing it right. That's not the way that this should be going down. You're making yourself the judge and subjecting God's wisdom to your judgments. But Jesus says in verse 19 at the end... Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. God's wisdom is not in danger of their condemnation. God's wisdom stands for itself. The mission that Jesus has come to accomplish, he is going to accomplish. He continues to call sinners to return to God. John with his sharp rebukes, Jesus with his warm invitations, all designed to get the attention of this generation and say, return to me. Make your hearts ready, prepare the way for the Lord. But they are missing it because they're playing the flute and waiting for him to dance. They're singing a dirge and waiting for him to mourn. They want Jesus and John to play their game, and it's not going to happen. And so it makes us ask this morning, what expectations are you placing upon God that cause you to miss what he has to say to you? Now, it can be tricky because you know what they say about blind spots is you can't see them because that's why they call them blind spots. So if I ask you, you what's your blind spot? What expectations do you have that are preventing you from seeing what God has to say? I don't know. If I knew, I'd do something about it. So let me give you a couple questions to kind of help diagnose this. I want you to consider the thing that if you don't get it, causes you to doubt God's existence or goodness or sovereignty or faithfulness? What is that thing in your life that you deeply desire and you say, God, if you don't give this to me, I'm not going to trust you? Or what is that thing that you have in your life that you say, God, if you ever take that from me, I'm not going to trust you? I would say that is an, expect- an expectation that you have placed upon God. And so once you identify that thing in your mind, once you have realized you've created the expectation of a God who promises that thing, then you need to look to God's word and say, does he promise it? Does he promise this? Or do I just have in my mind that he, if he's going to be good, he's got to give me this. And that's a good sign. If you don't find that promise in God's word, that's an expectation that you have set up that you expect God to deliver on. And maybe you won't walk away from the faith if you don't get it. But you might find yourself a lot like John, sitting in prison thinking, this isn't how the story is supposed to go. Are you are you sure you're the one? Or maybe there's somebody else who's going to do it differently. What is the thing that if God took it away, you would say I I don't know if I can stay on this boat. What expectations do you place on other Christians? So we we think about our relationship to God. What expectations hinder your relationships with other people in the church? What do you require of someone in order for you to consider them a brother or sister in Christ? What do you require of someone in order to extend warm, genuine friendship and fellowship with them in the church? What does God require in His Word for you to extend that warm fellowship and friendship? If we look biblically all God requires is that someone be in Christ to be your brother and sister in Christ but do you want them to talk in a certain way do you want them to like a certain kind of music do you want them to share similar interests or opinions on politics or a couple of second level doctrines before they're really one of your team what expectations do you place on God what expectations do you place on on other Christians. And are you placing yourself in judgment over the message of Jesus? Do you expect him to fit your box? Or are you ready to bust your box wide open and listen to him f- for who he is? We talked about this at our men's breakfast just the other morning about, and as we ended up talking a lot about politics, like, is my political philosophy, and you can have several different political philosophies, and goodness knows we're going to hear about them this week with Tuesday being election day, Do you submit your political philosophy to God, or do you make God fit your political philosophy and say, well, these are the things I absolutely know, and so I'm going to have to make what I know about God fit under that. What what is your ultimate rule of faith? What is the authority to which you submit? I am here to tell you this morning, it's got to be God's word. So how do you protect yourself against this? How do you protect yourself against false expectations? The most important thing you can do is read your Bible. Most important thing you can do is read your Bible. We're going to get down to basic Sunday school answer. It always comes back to this, doesn't it? But if you're going to say, I want to know Jesus for who he really is and not who I think he is in my mind, how are you going to know him for who he is? You got to read him. You got to read him and hear him in his own words. How are you going to know the mind of God? You got to know what God says. There is no substitute. There is no shortcut for this. The most important thing that you can be doing to make sure you're not falling in this same trap is read your Bible. And understand who are you, God? And don't just read the stories that are easy that are familiar. Read the hard stuff. Read the chapters in the Old Testament that make you think, I don't know what it's talking about. And find someone who can help you figure out what it's talking about. Read a book or a commentary that can help you figure that out. You're going to have to buckle down and do the work and dig through in order to understand who God really is. Because the danger of just swimming on the surface of the pool is when something comes along that sounds kind of Christian-like, you might think, oh, that, that sounds right. And then you expect God to follow that. And maybe God never promised to do that to begin with. Are you placing yourself in judgment over the message of Jesus, expecting him to dance to your tune, or have you seriously considered him for who he really is? If you're rejecting Jesus and keeping him at arm's length, I don't know about this whole Christianity thing. Are you doing it? Are you rejecting the Christianity that's in your mind that maybe you've picked up from what you've seen on TV or from a friend who hurt you years ago? Or are you rejecting the real Jesus? Have you ever bothered to look? to consider who he is, to consider what he said, to consider what he's done. We would invite you this morning to take a fresh look. And let's have a conversation. Let's bring your questions. Let's bring your doubts. Doubts are okay. This is a good place to have doubts. We need to create that kind of culture where as Christians and then the non-Christians who come in and watch us, it's the place where it's okay to doubt. We want to be people who are marked by what we do with those doubts, taking them to Jesus and waiting to hear what he has to say, listening for his answer. But if we are doing that, if we're getting into the word for ourselves, if we're seeking to know him for who he is, not for who we want him to be, then we will get out of the danger of misplaced expectations. And when our story goes in a direction we didn't expect, like John, in prison, languishing, suffering, we'll be able to say, I cling to your promises, rather than, are you really the one? Or should I be looking for someone else, for something else? Let's ask God today for grace to know him for who he is and to submit ourselves to his word, to his plan, to his mission. Let's pray.